Hey everyone, it's Dr. Z. Welcome to the live show. Hey, normally I don't do this for the main wide open internet because the main wide open internet is frightening. Uh, it can be a cesspool. I usually do this for my supporters, the people who subscribe on Facebook and YouTube. But today, let's just talk about anything, preferably COVID related because people are hysterical about this stuff. Again, talking about shutting down states again, um, whatever the news, whether it's reopening schools, what's going on, let's talk about it. Come with your questions and we will make up answers. So bring them. I'll tell you like, it's been insane how politicized everything around COVID is. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Of course, it just so happened this is a perfect storm. It's an election year uh, in a politically charged environment to begin with in the US where people don't like to be told what to do. So of course now we're seeing the consequences of all this happening at once. Um, Bunch of people coming in, no questions though. I see a lot of my supporters here, bring them. One thing I've been thinking about There's another hydroxychloroquine study out of Henry Ford in Detroit. And once again, that hydroxychloroquine makes the news, which listen, I think I'm tired of hydroxychloroquine now. There have been a good number of randomized trials now that just show that it doesn't work in hospitalized patients. There's still technical questions about giving it early and this and that, but can we move on? It's kind of like the vaccine autism thing. It's like, okay, we figured out they don't cause autism. Let's study the other things that do work, right? Like dexamethasone and the people who are saying, well, you just don't want a cheap drug to succeed. Dexamethasone. I want science to succeed. I don't care. I don't care if Trump likes it, if Trump hates it, if it works, I wanna use it. And that's what you should care about. Again, I think if we just stopped watching the news, we'd all be way better off. Um, All kinds of people showing up here, uh, but not a lot of questions. Okay, what's your take on aerosol-based spread, Thomas uh, Dummermuth? Okay, this is a great question. So there was this recent thing, again, watching the news, About 239 scientists wrote an open letter uh, basically asking WHO and CDC and these others to reevaluate the argument they make, which is that this is not an aerosol or airborne spread disease. What does that even mean? Okay, when you talk about how a disease spreads, you can talk about, and, and, and it matters because what you use to prevent the spread then changes. So when you say something is airborne or aerosol, you're typically talking about it's spread through the air in very, 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 very small particles. For example, measles can hang just on air currents in a space for hours and infect a ton of people. Uh, Tuberculosis, influenza can be a little more airborne, right? So what precautions do you take? Well, any air that can get in your mouth could potentially infect you then. So you have to wear a fitted N95 mask or better that prevents any air and, and, and filters it through so that only the most tiny things can get through. Well, there's the other mode of transmission, which is droplets, medium, small, and large droplets. So the things that we spit out of our mouth um, or... Uh, 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 moist little micro droplets that you don't, obviously you don't see them, but that they they only get a distance on average of around six feet or so 
before they fall typically to surfaces where they can infect surfaces. That's why we hand wash and sanitize surfaces. So if you say something is airborne, it means that your little surgical mask or your crappy little cloth mask is not gonna do much because the thing is in tiny particles and it's spreading out in rooms and that means that we need you know strict controls, N95 masks, and we're all in big, big trouble. Well, with this particular disease, there's no doubt there's some aerosol component. You can actually induce it if you do procedures. And when these droplets dry out, if there's not good ventilation, they're gonna float around, it's possible, right? in air and, and infect people. And there's some evidence that that actually happens. But the question is, you can see that you can mitigate, you can actually slow down spread in hospitals just by everybody wearing standard procedural masks, meaning just straight surgical masks. I still hate cloth masks, by the way. We should just spin up production of surgical masks if we think that's gonna help, right? So with the surgical masks, you're preventing yourself from expelling droplets and to some extent, you're preventing yourself from breathing in other droplets, but it's really more for droplet, less for airborne. But even if there's a component of airborne, you're decreasing just the sheer amount of particles in the air with those simple masks. And it seems to work when you're not in a situation like a very tight space stuck for a long period of time. So this idea of aerosol, um, it's almost a red herring at this point. What we ought to be doing is saying, okay, what's the easiest way to prevent the most people from getting infected in public situations? And then the second question is, what about healthcare professionals on front lines, right? And that's a different question. And we're starting to starting to get answers for this. But here, here's the thing, people are debating aerosol or not aerosol. Americans don't even social distance. They won't put a mask on. They're still not wearing, they're not wearing, they're wearing gloves to the supermarket and using them wrong and touching their face and their phone and all that. Why do we even care about aerosol or net aerosol when Americans are not going to do anything useful about the data? So that's, that gets me to another little mini rant that I want to make, which is there's a part of me that just wants to give up on Americans doing the right thing. Like, first of all, we're late into this. We have a ton of infections around. We don't know what the death rate's gonna do. It may be that it's largely young people, but we know that they could spread it to older, more vulnerable people. So we're gonna see a delayed death rate most likely start to spike up three weeks or so after the spike in hospital admissions and positive cases, but we don't know for sure, right? We need more data. But that being said, we don't have the public health infrastructure. We don't have the culture to say, okay, everyone's gonna wear masks or everyone's gonna lock down for so many months. Right? We could hardly tolerate the levels of lockdowns that we had, hardly. I wouldn't even say we did tolerate it. So this question of, well, we should lock down again and close the states again, it's, it's just, I said this in the very beginning of this whole pandemic. I said, look what China's doing in Wuhan. We will never be able to do that in the US. And it's true. The Europeans are closer because they have a, a centralized public health apparatus, right? For better or for worse, for better when you have a pandemic, because it means that you have some top-down control and people culturally tend to listen to that. US, no way. We have leadership at the highest levels that doesn't trust itself, right? In terms of government. And then you have 
CDC disjointed from WHO and the individual governors and all of this, no coordinated federal approach. CDC has existed its entire existence for this moment, and now it's just fumbled. So, and then rank and file Americans are the victims of misinformation, their own moral matrix bias that says, you know, I'm interested in freedom, but I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Okay, fine. Then you have to accept a high level of infections because that will be the trade-off. If you're willing to accept that and you're willing to sacrifice some lives, which is again, that's the trade-off for your being able to walk around without you know, uh, uh, social distancing and all that. And look, again, say what you will about the data around masks. It's pretty probable that if every single American suddenly put on a surgical grade mask, anytime they couldn't social distance going in public and so on, you would probably bend that infectious curve. Just, I mean, it's just straight probability on that. So there is a way to, to slow that down. But here's the bigger question, which I talk about quite a bit, and again, I, I, I said I take your questions. This is one question I'm still on a rant about, this aerosol question. So you bend the curve to what end are we doing this? Okay, because there's two real ways that we, oh, I've said this before, there's three ways that, that you can go. You can bend the curve so much that the infections drop really low, but the minute you let your guard down, they're gonna go back up. And we don't have the infrastructure, the political will, and the resources and the culture to allow for aggressive contact tracing via phone and that sort of thing to then keep it in check like they do say in Asian countries, right? So. It's not really continuing to squeeze it down. All that does is accomplish one thing we want, which is don't overwhelm the hospitals. In the time that we've been able to do the curve bending as much as we have, and remember in the US, curve bending looked like this. A lot of infections went down, bent it a little, and then this. But in that little time, we and the world together have figured out better ways to treat this. You don't intubate everybody. You don't mechanically ventilate everybody. Dexamethasone steroids may be helpful in particular phases of the disease during the cytokine storm. Um, remdesivir might help a little bit. Hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin doesn't do squat. Like we've learned these things. So now maybe our mortality rate in hospitals will be better. We're not, we don't know what's going on with the morbidity rate long-term. In other words, what harm are people suffering longer term from this disease if they've been in the hospital suffering PTSD and ICU delirium and all this other things? We're gonna see a, a, a generation of damaged people with long-term problems, one of which is gonna be delusional. And let me unpack this for a second. There are gonna be real long-term effects of this disease, and there's gonna be imaginary mass hysterical effects of this disease, like Morgellon syndrome, this delusional parasitosis that is a phenomenon of a bunch of people getting together on the internet and saying they have parasites and picking at their skin and claiming that this is the case, which is testable and falsifiable, yet they continue to believe it because they find chat rooms and groups and so on to support this delusion. Well. I suspect the same thing's gonna happen with people who either have been or think they've been infected with COVID-19, then having a myriad of symptoms that they attribute to that previous infection that are mind-body related. So that's gonna be a whole nother thing. So bucket one is really bend the curve, but to what end? 
prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed. Okay, if we can do that and buy us time to either make a vaccine or have better treatments, then it's worth it. Option two is just bend it enough, right? Just bend it enough to keep our most vulnerable, do it targeted. So elderly people, people with two or more chronic diseases, um, those sort of people ought to be protected staying home as much as they can, wearing masks, N95 level masks in public that really prevent them, protect them, face shields, that kind of thing. Face shields protect the user, right, more than they protect somebody outside because any droplets come and get stopped by this big face shield and prevent stuff from getting in your eyes. So you could do that for at-risk people if we had the political will and the education to do that. And that's kind of bucket B, let young people get infected knowing that some of them are gonna die. That's just statistical, just like flu. Look, the infectious fatality rate in young people is probably closer to a flu. In old people, it's quite a bit higher. In people with chronic disease, it's quite a bit higher. So you could take option two and let young people get infected, which they're doing now anyways, regardless of what you decide. Top-down authorities, they're gonna go do what they do because this is America. So as a result, they then develop you know, uh, some degree of collective immunity. Presumably, we don't know that that's a thing yet, but we presume it is based on uh, many other viruses, although some coronaviruses immunity is fleeting, you know, a year or less. Uh, so that being said, you could do that and that would develop some collective immunity while we wait for a vaccine, but you'd have to keep those young people away from their elders and from people who are at risk, which is hard to do. Now, and I, I suspect that society will find some auto-regulatory point where they do that, where they automatically do that. People at risk will see their friends and family getting sick and other people on the news getting sick, which I just hate the news because it creates so much fear and panic. We just need a better way to educate directly, right? And the third way is just let it burn through and not don't even worry about it. Just say America is a basket case. They're never gonna listen and let them get what they deserve. Well, what they deserve may be two million, people dead, it may be 500,000 people dead, it may be 200,000 people dead, we don't know because for all the reasons I've talked about in previous videos, we don't count deaths accurately, we don't count cases accurately, we don't know the infectious fatality rate. So it's kind of a, kind of a mess, but yet we could just, we could take one of those boxes and just go with it, right? It's not really rocket science but we have to understand the protoplasm we're dealing with, which is America. It's different than these other, there is an American exceptionalism. We're exceptionally weird about this stuff. Um, let's take some more. Are we making progress with COVID-19 treatment, Mandy Alba, that might change our approach with social isolation soon, like the use of steroids and other meds? Yes. Well, we're finding that we can reduce mortality with steroids, at least in the trial that was, um, performed so far in the UK. And I think anecdotally, we're hearing that from frontline uh, caregivers, but you, <laughs> it really comes down to your understanding of risk and what risk you're willing to take. So you gotta know what is the fatality rate in your age group with your other diseases. And if you know what that is, then you're willing to go, okay, let's see. So fatality rate maybe dropped a little because we have better treatments. Let's say instead of, you know, 0.5% of people die, let's say at the age of 45, 0.3% uh, of people die. Okay, so it's better. 
How does that change your perception of risk though? Your absolute risk of dying is still very small in both cases. So how are you gonna change your behavior? Well, depends on what you care about. If you care about dying, then you wanna minimize that risk as much as possible, then you would wear a face shield and an N95 mask in public and you'd isolate as much as you can. And if anyone has symptoms, you stay away from them. If you have symptoms, you get tested, wash your hands, all of that. If you care more about protecting others, you would wear a procedural mask in public and knowing that you might be asymptomatic and might pass it along. So I think the answer to the question is, yeah, we might be getting a little better for sure. It's still being studied. We'll probably get to a vaccine, hopefully at some point, but it's not gonna be immediate unless we do something miraculous, which could happen. Um, so in the meantime, the idea is you wanna balance risk as much as possible. Now we don't do that as a society because America isn't that cohesive. It's not like an Asian country like Singapore where they're just like, this is what, we wanna do and we're gonna do it. And everyone's like, sounds good. Cause that's the culture, right? And the political structure and the public health structure. We just can't do that in the United States. I'm convinced. And I said it in the beginning of all this, that I just don't think we can do this. It, it, just look at the amount of craziness online, how politicized this is. By the way, this shouldn't be, this should not be politicized, period. This is insane. So you gotta look at leadership across the board and go, yeah, we're holding you accountable for politicizing this. This is absolutely nuts on both parties. They're both awful. You know, we ought to just, oh God, I was watching Hamilton the other night with my kids on Disney and you know, you see the kind of origin of the two-party system and it comes from a division in our elephants and our moral matrix and our unconscious biases. So that's real, right? Because those are real differences, but man, it's spun into just, a uh, horror show. It used to be we had civil discourse. Now you can't even talk about stuff without being shut down. Um, let's read some more comments. Uh, we got about 3,000 people watching the live show, which always freaks me out. James says, expert, James Chevalier says, experts keep saying how coronavirus is novel, but seem to be acting as if the latest version is a normal coronavirus. Example, saying it's respiratory infection, despite all the other symptoms. Is it possible it's a blood disease? Okay, so when they say novel coronavirus, it simply means that it's a new configuration of coronavirus that humans typically have not been exposed to. Although this is controversial because there's some feeling that say the Japanese, for example, have a, had a very low death rate from this, despite having a lot of risks for having it be a disaster over there. And one of the theories is that they have been exposed as a, as a population. It's a very insular population, geographically isolated and so on. They've been exposed previously to some variant coronavirus that's led them to um, some ability to <clears throat> modulate their response to this uh, at an immune level, but we don't know, right? So it's a, it's a lot of speculation, but okay. I hear all kinds of people saying, this is a blood disease. This is a endothelial disease. This is a this, this is a that. It's a, it, it really doesn't matter. It's a new viral virus, and that means the way our body responds to it's gonna be relatively new. Whether it responds by blood clots, endothelial cell dysfunction, whether it responds, you know, people talk about this. In the end, you're gonna, <laughs> I think managing it the way we manage respiratory infections is a good start, and then you study as much as you can. But, you know, even, so let's say we say we think it's a blood disease and it causes a lot of clotting. What are you gonna do differently? You're gonna study it either way. If you start giving everybody who's infected with COVID-19, coronavirus, SARS-2 coronavirus, anticoagulants when they're hospitalized, blood thinners, 
without data, what's going to happen? You don't know. You could cause tremendous harm. And, and medicine and medical history is rife with harm that we've caused because we haven't studied something properly. And you know, it made sense to give post-menopausal post, uh, estrogen therapy to women to reduce all kinds of risks, right? Well, it turns out when they studied it in a big trial, it causes more harm. Same thing could happen with anticoagulation. So, and, and, and that's why people talk about hydroxychloroquine. Why aren't you just giving it to everybody? It has side effects. It can cause cardiac arrhythmias. It is not without harm. It can cause vision disturbances. This is not, nothing we do in medicine is completely benign, right? Even meditation can have downsides for people at risk because a lot of unconscious material comes up. Nothing we do is without consequence. So you have to make sure that on balance, it's less risky than the reward. That's why I'm really, 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 really getting tired of these doctors going online. You know, whoever this guy Bartlett and some other clown goes on, makes a video and says, this is what I've noticed in my practice. I gave them this and zinc, and then I gave them that. Zero people got hospitalized, man. Everyone got out of the, I don't know why I'm talking like that. It's just, I grew up in the Central Valley of California and all my friends talk like that and they weren't that bright. Um, and neither was I, to be honest. Uh, so that being said, these guys go out and say all this anecdotal shit. If you studied it, you would find it either caused harm or did nothing. Nine out of nine times. <laughs> if some doctor goes online and makes a video, think about it. We're in the middle of a pandemic. They're capitalizing on fear. They may even believe that what they're saying is true. It is probably complete garbage. Um, that's why science is slower. It's a process. It goes in fits and starts. It makes mistakes, but at least we have a process. These guys don't have a process. Their process is make some stuff up, give it to a bunch of people, rely on anecdote, and when you study it, it doesn't actually work. And worse than that, it's distracting people, it's putting them at a false sense of security, or it's causing side effects and harm. Let's read some more questions. Uh, where are we at here? Thank you to everyone who's sending stars. Thank you to everyone who's subscribed to become a supporter on Facebook or YouTube. It's like $4.99 a month. And we do this kind of thing like every day, but it's more casual and we have fun and it's great. You guys should join us, um, support the show. Um, let's see, is there a light at the end of the tunnel, Rachel Duncan? When will this all be over? Rachel, there's a saying in surgery, right? all bleeding stops. So bleeding can stop because you stop it. Bleeding can stop because it stops itself or bleeding can stop because all your blood leaves your body. <laughs> so it's the same with this pandemic. Eventually it's, you know, we're probably gonna be living with the SARS-2 coronavirus, but we're gonna adapt just like we did with swine flu, right? We live with it with H1N1 now. It's a part of the recurring pattern. We have vaccine for it. So probably we'll develop a vaccine. This will cool over and then we better get ready for the real pandemic because this is nothing. It really isn't. Wait till you see what actually nature has in store for us, right? Nature is surly, angry, and doesn't care about our feelings or fairness. It just does stuff and we have to adapt quickly. And we really drop the ball on this one. The next one, if it is like measles level airborne and highly fatal, 
and hurts children too, what are we gonna do? We better be ready for that, which means we better start looking at our failures in this one and decide what we're gonna do for the next. Um, especially the politicization failure, politicization failures, we really, really, really have to do better about that. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Where are we at? Thoughts about ivermectin, they're using it in Mexico, Francisca Russo, another great example of harm done by fraudulent medicine, fraudulent studies. So the database on which ivermectin, which is a paras anti-parasitic drug, was proposed as a helpful treatment for COVID-19 was based on the same fraudulent database that the hydroxychloroquine trial was done. I did a video on this. Um, it was this company, I forget the name of it, it was run by this con artist that basically <clears throat> made up these databases that were impossible to actually do in real life. And so ivermectin has no evidence that it actually helps anything. But when that original data came out, that was again, not reliable data, South American countries said, okay, yeah, let's do that. We have that. It's not, you know, a big deal. We let's let's use it. Causes harm. Doesn't help. Stop using it. It's really, really problematic. Um, the way that this has unfolded. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see. Why was the pandemic team dismantled? Jeff Dina Watson. I, I don't know. Can't speak for the government. I know this, I'll say this. And again, I look, politically, you guys know, like I'm all over the place. I just want stuff that works, whatever it is, right? My own biases are a little bit libertarian. Um, I don't like the regressive left. In other words, this like politically correct, shaming, outrage culture, like can't have a discussion without being canceled. I hate that. And I hate the insane right you know, the xenophobic, homophobic, racist, like that extreme on both sides, I don't really care for. But I'll say this, um, the leadership we have now at the highest level of government has not ever been very sympathetic to scientific cause. And I'll tell you why I think this is. Because President Trump, and this is editorializing on my part, um, President Trump works his thing on pure elephant. In other words, intuition, emotion, persuasion, that sort of vibe, that's his thing. He is exactly the type of person that would not trust the egghead scientist because the egghead, egghead scientist does, is not persuasive. The egghead scientist gives data, hedges, speaks in nuance, the Trump style is to say, this is it, engage right with the elephant, motivate the elephant and just go, which means science is not very good about that. That's why we keep hearing about hydroxychloroquine when it's not a thing, right? Or, you know, we hear things like, hey, we got this completely under control. This is going away. And then we see infection rates going up. Now, you can make scientific nuanced arguments and go, well, what does the infection rate mean? Is it accurate? Is the death certificates accurate? Those are all fine arguments, but that's very different than saying this is completely under control. So his style is not conducive, This, which is why he's endorsed anti-vaccine sentiment in the past and that sort of thing. So say whatever else you will about Trump's benefits and cons, one of the cons in this current environment is 
him and science, not so much. So you have to hope he's surrounded by reasonably smart scientists. Um, otherwise, it's a problem. Now, you could say the same about uh, um, liberal politicians. You know, a lot of times they surround themselves with anti-vax sentiment as well. And, you know, so there's all kinds of stuff like that. But it is a serious issue that we have to openly discuss without digging into, oh, Trump's a bad guy or Trump's a good guy or go Trump or F Trump, whatever. Just let's look at the issues and say, okay, what, what's, what's working, what's not working, what's working, what's not working, right? Um, yeah, I'm sure I pissed some, somebody off just by being rational about that. Um, you know, like Kerry Davis, Trump may not have handled it very well, but I don't think Democrats would have handled it any better, even with their committees. I have just very little faith in the government, no matter if I agree with them or not. Kerry, I'm not gonna disagree with that. I, I, I'm with you. I, I, our faith in government should be seriously shook if it wasn't already. You know, our CDC has failed us. Our federal government has failed us. Our state governments, depending on the state, some have stepped up, some not so much. Our public health on the granular level at least has tried, but their communication strategies are disjointed. So this country does not do top-down structures very well, for better or for worse. This is America. Um, Let's see here. Uh, okay, where are we at? Oh, here's an interesting one. Malik Rodriguez. The International Medical Journal states that COVID-19 contains HIV-1 and HIV-2 genomes. Should people who get infected also test to see if they are HIV positive? Okay, so several things here, Malik. I don't know what the International Medical Journal is. Sounds made up. Second thing is, contains HIV genomes, that makes no sense at all. So from a scientific standpoint, that just makes no sense. An HIV genome is the is the RNA that makes up the um, HIV virus. So what you're proposing is that the coronavirus has that genome in it. It doesn't, it has a coronavirus genome. They may share some similarities to HIV, like many viruses share homology to other viruses, which is partially how you classify viruses, right? Uh, but in this case, getting tested for HIV, always a good idea anyways, but has nothing to do with the SARS-2 coronavirus at all. So that's misinformation that is being spit at you online. And unless you're uh, medically trained, it's very hard to distinguish truth from, from fantasy on that. Um, I'm ready to delete all my social media accounts. People have gone bat-ish crazy, Denise Cronin. See, I'm trying hard not to curse, so you guys will share this. Um, yes, they have delete social media, including what you're watching right now. I couldn't agree more. It's a poison. Twitter is a poison. Social media is a poison. Cable news is a poison. Hang out with family and friends and just do three things for me, just for me. This is just me. If you go into a crowded place, just throw a mask on, if only to make other people feel better. It's just a courtesy to other people. Um, and it'll reduce transmission. Um, wash your hands. Try not to get in people's faces. Do a little social distancing. And if you're having symptoms, get tested and stay home. That's all. That's all you really need to do. It ain't rocket science, but it ain't gonna happen in America. But it ain't rocket science. But look, I'm with you guys. I hate masks. You know I hate masks. And I hate cloth masks more. I think they're stupid. Um, is there any truth to certain blood types being more prone to severe COVID disease? Brittany Hamans. Probably. Statistically, it looks like there's associations between um, like having an O 
blood type and I forget the RH factor associated negative or positive and being less likely to um, be infected or get severe disease from coronavirus. We don't know why though. And we don't know what to do with that information except to use it as a basis for, okay, what could it be about this virus and the infectious process scientifically that makes certain blood types more risky? But what are you gonna do, change your blood type? You can't. What are you gonna do, quarantine everyone with type A? Good luck with that, it's the majority of people. Um, so it's not a very actionable, like we spend a lot of intellectual processor cycle talking about, oh, the blood type, but it doesn't really matter in the end. Well, who cares? Like you can look at your own risk and go, okay, let me see, I'm a type, like, look at me, I'll, let me look at me. If I looked at all the statistical correlations with risk and myself, okay, I'm 47 years old, puts me at slightly higher risk. I'm of Middle Eastern ancestry, puts me at higher risk. Iran didn't do very well, right? I have two blood clotting disorders, factor V Leiden and prothrombin 20210A. I've never had a blood clot, but I saw that on 23andMe on my genetic testing. So I'm heterozygous for both, which puts me at higher blood clotting risk. Well, we know that this disease promotes blood clots to some degree, I'm at higher risk there. I'm type A something blood type, technically at higher risk. I'm a bald male. So it turns out there's data that shows that bald males have a higher risk. Males in general have a higher risk. Well, and I'm, I'm going through this exercise not to say, oh, this is my risk, to say, this is how you think about risk. So I'm a bald male. They think there's some hormonal issue with androgen receptors or something, and it's all speculation. But higher people on ventilators and stuff, bald men. Okay, so... And I don't have any other pre-existing conditions. No hypertension, no diabetes, no, you know, I'm my BMI is borderline slightly overweight, maybe, but that's because I'm ripped, bro. That's what I tell myself. Um, I'm big boned. And so I'm at higher risk. In, but in a pantheon of risk, I'm not 65. I don't have diabetes, hypertension, obesity, heart failure, lung disease. So where does that put my risk? If we had good data, I could stratify my risk and say, oh, I have a 0.3% chance of dying of COVID, which means I'm gonna be less worried about it in general. I'll be about as worried as I was a little bit more than a flu. But if my risk is higher than that, I might think about hmm, maybe I'll wear an N95 and argue with my employer that I work from home. You get it? Or I'm a teacher, I don't wanna go back into class if I'm at high risk. But I do want my students to go to class because they're at low risk. So you see the tension there. It, it's, it's not easy, but we have to understand risk in order to even have these conversations and think about it clearly in a way that makes sense. Um, Brandy Martz, how are we supposed to trust the CDC and the WHO after being lied to and manipulated, COVID stats and now talk of mandatory vaccine? With Gates and Clintons involved, this is so worrisome. I believe COVID is real, but this seems so blown out of proportion. Brandy Martz, okay, Brandy. Lots of people in this tribe are going to attack you for what they're gonna perceive as conspiratorial thinking in your statement. So how do we trust CDC and AWHO? We've been lied to, COVID stats are manipulated, you drop the Gates and the Clintons. So immediately it's like all the conspiracy flags. But I'm gonna tell you this, uh, Brandy, you're not crazy to ask questions about trusting authorities because we, haven't had great experiences with that. Forget about Gates and the Clintons and all that. Just think about CDC and WHO. 
They're doing, honestly, I think they're doing the best they can. The problem is their job is almost insurmountable. They have to give recommendations for the most people based on data that's solid, not speculation, not early data, whatever. And that means they have to hedge, they have to message thinking also how much PPE do we have? What should we say? Should we say mass? Should we not say mass? Should we say cloth mass? And then it comes off to the public. This is where Trump is right. Trump knows people quite well. That's how he manipulates them so effectively, right? That's why he hits people's elephant. He's able to fill rooms with people that love the guy and fill rooms with people that hate the guy. Why? Because he understands intuitively people. He understands that if you're messaging publicly, you don't do that because it's gonna confuse people and make them mistrust you. And just like Brandy is mistrusting CDC and WHO, she believes it's real, but it's blown out of proportion, right? That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Because if you're not having friends and family dying of it, if you're seeing the press constantly catastrophizing, which they do, and you're seeing Twitter and social media, you're seeing your liberal friends, right? I'm presuming you're a little more conservative. Look at your liberal friends and they're just online, just shaming people for not wearing masks and tisking the dumb Trump supporters for, um, you know, not caring about grandma's lives and so on, not understanding the elephant, the moral matrix where people are coming from. And instead using this projection of, of shaming and all that, of course you're gonna feel that way, you know? And honestly, I wouldn't say you're wrong to feel that way. I would say this though, I think there is a lot of catastrophizing. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle in terms of how severe this is. I think there are simple rational things that we can do to lower everybody's risk without all the cataclysm and nonsense going on. As far as mandatory vaccine goes, I don't think vaccines should ever be mandatory, but I think they should be encouraged by structures. So in other words, to go to school, you need to be vaccinated unless you have a medical reason not to be. I think that people should be allowed to decline you service if you are not behaving in a way that they want as a business. Like for example, if you come in without a mask and the business requires a mask, they can decline you entrance and service as a private business. So that's how I think. I think it's a combination of kind of public and private stuff that we ought to be doing. Um, so thank you for that. that was a valid question. Um, <laughs> Sigrid says, honestly, you're the voice of reason in all this craziness. Well. I get crazy too, Secret. I do, because I'm a human too. And so sometimes my elephant just gets outraged and starts rampaging. But in general, I try to be a rationalist, which is something that I've been practicing for many, many years. And I think things like meditation, studying science, but also studying humans, loving both sides of the political aisle. And I say this with all sincerity, I love my conservative friends. They are wonderful, good, upstanding people. I love my advocate social justice liberal friends, even though they can be a little preachy sometimes, but their heart is to help other people. I love them both. And I'm somewhere, I precipitate out somewhere in the middle myself, but I share values on all sides of these things. And that's what we are. We're humans first. We're Americans here. If we're in this country, if you're watching in another country, viva la your country. Um, but I think we have to start to transcend family, tribe, community, state, nation, globe, all conscious creatures. Eventually the goal is to get out here, but we're probably here. So let's try a little bit harder. 
And that means being a little more rational, but also appreciating our emotional side and, and respecting it and honoring it. Um, Aaron says, cancer patients for Z-Dog. Love you, tribe. I love you too, Aaron. Um, let's see. Kim Bronson, bless their hearts. <laughs> um, see, now here's a good example. So Debbie Northrup says, Trump has went bat-ish crazy and is dangerous to everyone and everything. And it's already got a bunch of likes. All right. That's your elephant speaking. So that is not going to be a productive statement. Is it going to convince someone who's sympathetic to some of the things that Trump believes? No, it's not. It's going to make you feel better. You're going to feel like you said something. But the truth is it's not going to help anything. So those kind of comments, they're on both sides of this political aisle, right? I mean, we have the Clinton hater. We got the Trump hater. It's not a productive conversation. Like, it's fun to have those conversations with your friends and family and stuff. But it just, it's, I think, part of the downside of social media is it's just so polarized that way because social media games that aspect of our unconscious. You know, the desire for in-group loyalty, the desire for feeling correct, the desire for um, uh, confirmation bias, you know, it, it, it's something we really have to work hard on uh, to see the other side of this. Kids in transmission related to viral load and their likely likelihood of being a vector of transmission to adults, Andrea Williams, great question. Preliminary data seems to suggest that kids are less likely to be infected. Look at the Spanish seroprevalence study that just came out. They're less likely to have symptoms and they may well be less likely to transmit, but less doesn't mean not likely. It means less. It's a probability and risk game. And not all children are created equal. Some are at risk. Very small, tiny subset may get this multi-inflammatory uh, system of a uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children, MISC. So, but it's very tiny. So when you think about risk, risk is much, much smaller. Now, there was an Israeli piece that was sent to me that Israel was saying that maybe their schools, opening their schools was a problem because they went from one of the best situations to one of the worst now. Um, but they also opened bars and gyms. So how can they say that without very good contact tracing? We just don't have enough data, but we do have a good sense of what, the harms are of keeping kids locked up. So it's risk and benefit always. Now you can tell where my bias is. My bias is let our children go. I don't believe in a culture of safetyism where we're trying to protect our children from any bit of harm. I think it's harmful to them. I think it make, makes a generation of fragile, neurotic, suicidal, depressed children, which we're seeing in Gen Z already. Um, and that's my take on that. Um, Let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, so Timothy Seaton says, I appreciate you balancing the scales when it comes to pro-anti-Trump. Not a fan, but that has nothing to do with the virus and where we find ourselves today. Timothy Seaton. You gotta talk about policies. Forget about the people. Like what are the policies that are working and what are not working and how do we adjust, right? Um, so did you see the Harvard report about AC and buildings spreading COVID, recycled and recirculated air, Deb Mandy? I have seen some of these reports and there was a famous report of this restaurant in China where one patron that was asymptomatic infected the, a lot of people in the restaurant. It was a tiny restaurant, poor ventilation with AC that was blowing and recirculating. And this is the problem, airborne or not, droplets can circulate on air currents if the air currents are sufficient and there's no ventilation to the outside. So then you just, it, it, the way people have talked about it, which I think is valid is, are you sharing the air with other people? If you're sharing the air, 
in a significant way for a prolonged period of time, that's a risk, right? So bottom line is we have to design better ventilation. Like instead of money being going into cleaning surfaces and stuff, we might wanna put that money in better ventilation, N95 masks, whatever it is that we wanna do. It's tough in restaurants because some of the restaurants are just poorly designed. They were not designed with that intent. So getting outdoor seating is probably a good idea. More takeout stuff, probably a good idea. Um, but look, let's 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 be honest for some for a second here. Um, we are social creatures, and I'm going to editorialize for a second. I'm going to try to do it rationally. We're social creatures, and what we've done with this whole COVID nineteen thing is we've done something unprecedented, which is quarantine healthy people. And again, I'm going to sound like these. I'm going to sound like these crazy conservative, like you know, Bakersfield docs or these other things that, that rant about this. But l- l- hear me out. We're taking healthy people and we're isolating them. Uh, it's really difficult because we the things out of the bag already. You can't just isolate sick people because there's asymptomatic people, and it's too late. So now we're isolating healthy people, which is very harmful to the average psyche. There are introverts and people who suffered in the old system that are now thriving, and that's lovely to see, including children. But for the most part, most people are suffering, which is why when you give them any opportunity to open up, they go right back to like turning it to 11. Don't judge them for that. They're human beings. This has been very, very hard, you guys. Like there are people suffering mentally, people with generalized and specific anxiety disorders, people with depression and loneliness and isolation, people who've lost their jobs, their livelihood, their purpose in life. And to take all that away and have it feel like it's for nothing is really hard. To reinstitute those measures is also really hard. We need to focus on targeted approaches that work for the most people at the least cost to the social fabric, the economy, our mental health, and our physical health. And there are ways to do this which are rational, which are science-based, or at least anecdotally based enough that they're low cost and potentially high reward. And my own thinking evolves on this and has changed with this, but I think that we can do that while preserving our sanity and our humanity. And that way we can take our American exceptionalism, which has served us poorly during this crisis, and actually turn it into a strength, right? Once again. So that's how I wanna kind of wrap this up, is I want you to think about these things. The calls to action are really, hey, let's stop just like politicizing all this and let's talk about just issues. Let's strip the politics away. Look. If you care about politics, vote in the fall for whatever you believe in. But right now, we care about issues. And I would say this, we should punish politicians for making things political, (laughs) for doing their job, basically. We should punish them by voting them out. So let's, let's really encourage people to say, you know what, I care about these issues. Tell me what the issues are. That's what I'm gonna vote on. And I care in social media, I'm gonna unfriend you if all you do is talk politics. I'm just gonna unfriend you. I don't need it in my life. It's not helpful. We need to understand each other, not divide further. You can argue issues. Heck, you can sit here and talk about abortion in a non-political way. 
that's concordant with your values. You can have that debate without hating the other person, without attacking their politics, without lumping them in, without catastrophizing and overgeneralizing and all the cognitive biases that have served us so poorly during this and beyond, personally and collectively. So that being said, thank you. We're up to 47 minutes now. Thank you. I'll post this up on YouTube a little later for joining me for this. Thank you for your great questions. Thank you for trying to promote rationality. Thank you for doing your part. Um, and for being with us and for all the supporters in this tribe who've sent stars or who subscribe for the $4.99 a month, I deeply appreciate you. You guys know how much I appreciate you because I tell you every day that we do a supporter show. We're gonna do one on meditation and consciousness coming soon just for supporters. So definitely tune in. I'll give you a trigger warning for people who hate that stuff. All right, I love you and we out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.